Father, once again, Lord, we want to thank you, as we saw last week from Colossians chapter 1, for being the one who has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's why we are here, Lord. We are here because we want to offer up to you worship and adoration and praise and thanksgiving and gratitude for what you have done, Lord. It is not about us. It's about you. And I pray this morning, Lord, as we look at this great passage and this great theme of your mission, that we would be people who would be doers of the word, driven to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. We ask you all these things in your name. Amen. All right, well, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we are digressing for one week uh, this Sunday morning uh, from our study through the book of Colossians uh, to look at what it means to be a mission-focused church, mission-focused church. And I want to look at this great passage of Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through chapter 10 and verse 1. Let me read it for us. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus summoned his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Amen to the reading of his word. As we look at this beautiful passage uh, in Matthew chapter 9 this morning, it's not my intention to dissect all of the intricacies of what we just read right now, but to make some key observations in what we see here as we stop and consider our mission here on this earth. And if there's one thing, beloved, that I don't want you to walk away from uh, this morning, it is this. We, as individuals and as a corporate body, have a mission to fulfill here on earth. We have a mission to fulfill here on earth. We read a passage earlier, Acts 1, 1 through 11, where the exalted Christ commissions his church. And that mission of Christ is the mission for every single local church that is Bible-believing, that is gospel-centered, that is mission-focused, because every single one of those churches has heard the words of the Great Commission at one point or another. Let me read you the words of the Great Commission. Our Lord Jesus, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, says this, "'Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations.'" baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We've all heard that passage of the Great Commission many, many times. The main verb in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, is that verb, make disciples. What does making disciples involve? Well, it first of all involves, according to that passage, baptizing them, baptizing people. 
And that implies that the gospel has been shared with a person and that in response to the hearing of the gospel, that person has repented of their sins, they turned from their sins, and they've trusted in Christ as the Lord and Savior of their life, as the only provision of God for the forgiveness of their sins, whereby they can be reconciled to God. And then consequently, having been converted, after trusting in Christ as the only provision for their salvation, they are baptized which is a public confession and joyful declaration of an internal reality. Making disciples also involves teaching those disciples to observe all that Jesus has commanded them. Where? Well, in His Word, in the Bible. This means that when a new convert, a Christian, a disciple, a follower of Christ surrenders his life to Christ, he or she enters into a relationship with Christ whereby they are growing closer to Christ by means of his word and the power of his spirit and the fellowship of other Christians in a process of becoming more and more like Jesus called sanctification. So making disciples involves this whole process of someone coming to know Christ as they turn from their sins and they put their faith in Christ and of maturing into Christ's likeness until God takes them home. It's that whole process. And that is the Great Commission. What we are called to be about as a church and as individuals. Every Christian, beloved, listen. Every Christian not only is called to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but also by virtue of the fact that you are a follower of Christ, a disciple, a Christian, you have joyfully and willingly adopted Christ's mission for the nations. You have been recruited to be on Christ's mission here on this earth and make disciples. Every single one of you who is a believer has this as your singular mission. The charter of your life, if you will. The mission of every Christian is to make other disciples who in turn will make other disciples who will in turn make other disciples and so on and so on. We are not here on this earth to accomplish our own mission, but Christ's mission as believers. When you are uh, recruited and enlisted by the U.S. Armed Forces, and then you're trained, you're trained so that you would carry out the mission of the United States of America, right? Not your own mission. And within that broad, big vision of the United States of America, you have a particular role to play within that particular mission. But it all heads in one direction. So it is for every believer, We have one mission, and we read what that mission is all about in Acts 1, 1 through 11, as well as in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. Every single one of us, beloved, who are part of Christ's church, have as our mission to carry out what the Lord Jesus has commanded us. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And he was not kidding, was he? For 2,000 years, he's been building his church, has he not? This new living organism, this beautiful living organism called the church, comprised of people who have bowed the knees to him as the Lord and Savior of their lives, past, present, and future. Jesus is building his church, beloved, and he's called us to be instruments by which he does that. 
We are called to make disciples. And that call is how Jesus uses us, beloved, to build his church. He doesn't need us. And yet he's called us to this wonderful, joyful privilege of being a part of that which he is doing on this earth. The problem is that for many of us, the Great Commission has become the great omission. Many of us have heard many times messages like these about what our mission is to be on this earth. Many of us have heard messages calling us, charging us to be about making disciples. To be about as a corporate body making disciples. But many of us are not living mindful of that mission or, either, or actively striving to make disciples when push comes to shove. That's not what our greatest agenda is on this earth, if you will. We pursue many other peripheral matters. But we are not making disciples. The Great Commission is your mission, whether you are a single person, a believing single person, a husband, a wife, a daddy, a mama, a teenager, a believing teenager, an elderly saint who has bowed the knee to the king, a grandpa, a grandma. This is your mission to make disciples, beloved. This is it. And wherever God has you, whatever context of work or neighborhood or whatever, everything is to be heading in one direction of making disciples for the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. In this sense, every single one of us, listen, are missionaries. Every single one of us are missionaries on this earth. You are a missionary on this earth if you are a believer. That is your vocation. First and foremost, that is your vocation. Well, for all the great missionaries that have walked amongst us in church history, none surpasses the greatest missionary of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. None. None. There have been many great missionaries on this earth, but none has even come close to comparing with the ultimate greatest missionary, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in this passage, we see Jesus, the most lovely person to ever walk on this earth, manifesting his great power as he carries out the mission of his father. Look at chapter 9, verse 35. It says that Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. This was the pattern of our Lord Jesus' ministry, teaching privately in the synagogues, publicly proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and authenticating His teaching concerning Himself and His Father and His kingdom by means of powerfully healing all kinds of people, casting out demons to give people a glimpse of what it's going to be like in the kingdom when He reigns supreme. In fact, in chapters 8 through 9 of Matthew alone, if you go back and survey the last two chapters, there are recorded some 10 plus miracles which show the great authority and the power of the great missionary, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the great missionary at work. Our Lord was an example of one who had the heart of a missionary. And beloved, this morning, it's my desire that we would glean from our Lord 
that we would glean from Him because I want us as individuals and as a church to have a greater heart for the mission of our Lord here on this earth. A greater heart for that. And what better model than Christ to propel us to a greater pursuit of our mission of making disciples. And so I make no apologies this morning. I'm not pulling any punches, making no pretense. I'm here to tell you this. I want to fan the flame in your heart to be all the more about the exalted Christ's mission here on this earth. I want us to walk away all the more committed to see the name of God magnified as we carry out the mission of Christ here on this earth to a desperately sick and wicked generation. For others of us to simply light the flame. Maybe you are here this morning and you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. Because you have not bowed the knee to the Lord and Savior of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you are here and you don't understand this because Christ is not the Lord and Savior of your life. And my prayer this morning is that today would be the day of salvation for you. That you would turn from your sins and put your faith in Christ, the one who is the only provision of God for the forgiveness of your sins. The one who took upon God's wrath for your sins. I pray that you would turn from your sins and put your faith in Christ who died to atone for your sins on the cross. He is the only way, the truth, and the life. He is the only one that can reconcile you to God Almighty. For the rest of us, what can we glean? What can we glean from the greatest missionary that will propel us to be a mission-focused people for the glory of God? And there are two primary observations that I want us to see this morning from this particular passage. First of all, I want us to see Jesus' burden for broken people. I want us to see Jesus' burden for broken people. And beloved, I want you to dig deep this morning. I want you to put your heart on the surgeon's table, if you will. And ask yourself this question, are you daily burden for broken people around you? As you look at our city of Burbank, as you look at the greater Los Angeles area, as you look and you survey our great country of America, as you look around the nations all over the world, are you burdened for people who are hopeless and lost? Are you broken for broken, are you burdened for broken people? Or are we so preoccupied with our lives and our circumstances that that we take little to no time to consider those around us who are lost? Perhaps even those in our own home. So that it drives us to pray that God would use us to reach people for Christ. See? At this time in the ministry of our Lord, what we see is Jesus... Becoming more and more popular. He's growing in popularity. There are people, multitudes after him. Most of them for the wrong reasons. Not recognizing who he is. And the implications for following after Christ. They're merely enamored by his power. He's having huge impact upon these multitudes. He knows their hearts. But he knows his great influence. And rather than being enamored with his own impact upon the multitudes. Or his great influence. Jesus is moved with compassion for the people. Look at verse 36. Seeing the people, or the multitudes, or the crowds, he felt compassion for them. He felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep, having no shepherd. 
Notice, as Jesus observes the multitudes, he feels compassion for them. He feels this deep pity, this deep and profound compassion or tenderness for them. This is the strongest Greek term for expressing deep, heartfelt love for somebody. Literally, it refers to tender compassion that you feel in the entrails or the inward parts. This is genuine, deep, profound love for these people as he looks out there and he gazes upon their eyes. There's this deep, genuine affection and tenderness for them. Paul uses the same word in Philippians chapter 1, verse 8. When expressing his love for the Philippians, he says, I long for you with the affection, literally the inward parts of Christ Jesus. So here we see Jesus, the eternal Son of God, moved with deep, heartfelt compassion for the multitudes. This is not unique to this passage. Often, if you, when you survey the Gospels, over and over again, what you see in our Lord is a truth speaker like none has ever existed, but also someone who loved like no one has ever loved. One full of compassion and mercy for the multitudes, for the poverty-stricken, for those who were suffering. He was a man who loved greatly. So this is not unique to this particular passage. In fact, in Luke 13, 34, one time upon looking at the great city of Jerusalem and, the, and mourning over their rebellion, he cries out in Luke 13, 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Jesus was moved with compassion, even for rebellious Jerusalem. And not only that, but he was even driven to weeping at other times. In Luke chapter 19, verse 40, 41, it says that when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. He wept over it. Jesus wept when he saw people who were broken, even people who were rebellious toward him. Because he knew of the coming judgment of God, did he not? And he knew that they would be judged one day if they didn't turn from their sins and put their faith in him as the only Lord and Savior of their lives. They would be damned forever. And it drove him to weeping. When was the last time as you looked at your unbelieving family members in the home or extended as you looked at your neighbors, as you looked at other people in your workplace, as you look at the news and you see people that are broken, absolutely broken and suffering, and at the root you know it's because of sin. When was the last time you wept for the brokenness around you? When was the last time you grieved for the hopelessness and the godlessness of our current generation so that it drove you to your knees and said, Oh God, use me in some capacity in the life of somebody to proclaim the gospel to them that they may have hope. When was the last time we've done that, beloved? See, Jesus, the Lord of the universe, expects compassion from us toward broken people. Does he not? We forget about the fact that we were at one point the fornicators. We were at one point the homosexuals. We were at one point the deceivers and the liars and the thieves. We were at one point the hateful ones, beloved. Such were some of us, were we not? Were it not for the grace of God, 
and God extending His hand to your life to save you, you would be in the same place, beloved, under the wrath of God presently. That should invite our compassion for people, you see. Jesus had little tolerance for a lack of compassion in people. In fact, in the previous context, in Matthew 9, 9-13, Jesus rebukes the Jews for their lack of compassion towards sinners. Including Matthew the tax collector. Oh, those tax collectors were hated ones, were they not? There were Jews who worked for the Roman government and collected taxes for them. But not only did they collect taxes from their own Jewish people, but they also pilfered some of the money so they became rich because of the prophets. Oh, the Jews hated their guts. Jesus had compassion upon people like that, like Matthew, who was repentant. And upon Samaritans, reaching out to them, trying to rescue them out of their brokenness, trying to rescue them out of their dark lives. Now, this compassion that he displayed was not superficial. It was not simply due to Jesus being sad about people's external circumstances. Not at all. It was not that Jesus was moved with compassion for the people only because of their physical suffering. Though he was genuinely, genuinely, authentically a a, a man who had mercy upon people, did he not? He could have zapped people from a distance and healed them from a mile away. What did he do? He touched people, did he not? He went to them. He touched them. He was tender. He was affectionate in those healings. He cared for people in light of their physical suffering. But his greater concern, beloved, far more than the external suffering, was that this external suffering was a manifestation of their deeper spiritual poverty, right? There was a deeper spiritual poverty. He understood it. And here in verse 36, we see this. The two words used to describe the multitudes here speak of a deeper spiritual plight of the people. Notice in verse 36, he says that they were distressed and dispirited like sheep having no shepherd. These terms picture sheep wounded and hurt because of vicious wolves or because of their inability to care for themselves. These people were not able to care for themselves. They were defenseless, if you will. Defenseless people. They were like sheep having no shepherd, no guidance. They were misguided. They were going after the wrong things. Sheep without a shepherd are greatly vulnerable and helpless, are they not? They need a shepherd for survival. Otherwise, they're lost and they're in danger. That's how when people looked upon the faces of these individuals and their eyes, we ought to spend time doing that. Instead of criticizing and just judging sinners who are in the same position that at one time we were, we ought to look into their eyes and see the pain that they are in. Even in their joy, they don't recognize the fact that at one point or another, that pleasure is going to fade away and they're going to continue to seek after things that will never satisfy them. Never. When we look at the example of Jesus, beloved, Jesus looked at the multitudes and he knew that there were people who needed help. He saw them broken, suffering physically, yes, but more so that they were suffering because of sin and their spiritual condition. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why he came. How often do we look at people in a hopeless predicament with this kind of Christ-like love and compassion? Listen to me. People are not just a burden, okay? They're not just a, a nuisance, 
sinners to look down upon, criticize, or stay completely away from. They're not eyesores that we simply look upon with disdain and disgust. People that we simply stare down because they don't look like us, they don't dress like us, they don't act like us. At some point, such were some of you and me. When I look upon my past and the brokenness of Kempis Hernandez, I am grateful that there were people who were merciful to me, who in the midst of my sin reached out to me and preached the gospel to me. And I'm here today not because of Kempis' initiative. It was because of God using people who were compassionate and merciful enough to tell me what I needed to hear. Beloved, people are made in the image of God, are they not? Made in the image of God. We need to realize that that perfect image has been terribly marred and corrupted by sin. And yes, people are absolutely responsible for their own sins, but they need hope, you see. They need hope. They need to hear the hope of Christ, that someone, namely Christ, is infinitely better than any pleasure that they could ever seek. And that those pleasures will never satisfy them, you see. They will never satisfy them. God has created them to worship Him supremely. And He is the only one that is to be worshipped. He is the only one who will satisfy the wicked sinner's heart. And we need to be prepared to drop that bomb on people with love and compassion and speak the truth to them. Because they need hope, you see. Our Lord understood the terrible plight of humanity. And it burdened Him, and it cut Him, and it must cut us deeply, beloved, so that we're driven to this heartfelt compassion for our fellow man. Not compromising the truth. Not running after the things of the world. I'm not talking to you about that. What I'm talking to you about is this, speaking the truth in love to them about Christ. Don't just leave them there and avoid them at all costs. Our Lord had a deep burden for broken people. A deep burden. But I want you to notice how this genuine, heartfelt burden for people motivated Jesus to be all the more resolved to fulfill His mission. And to point His disciples to that mission. That's the second observation here. Jesus is resolved to fulfill the mission. Jesus is resolved to fulfill the mission. Now listen. It is not simply that in our resolve to fulfill our mission, we simply generate some momentum. I'm not trying to pump you up emotionally right now so that you walk away from here and you do nothing about it. I'm not. What I desire is that we would be resolved and determined to put into action the things that we are seeing in the life of our Lord. And that begins with prayer. That begins by seeking the face of God. That's your first sub-point there. This resolve is fueled by prayer. Fueled by prayer. Notice how Jesus was... He's going to send them out in verse 1. But the first thing that He does is He reminds the disciples of the fact that the task is too great to do alone and they should drive them to seek the face of God for help. It wasn't that Jesus was inadequate to fulfill His own mission. He could have done the mission on his own if he wanted to. He wanted to show the disciples that they needed the Father. They needed strengthening and empowering, as we've seen in Colossians chapter 1. This resolve to fulfill our mission is fueled by prayer. Notice what he does in verse 37. 
Then he said to his disciples, this is right after having looked upon them and seen the crowds with compassion. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. In other words, there's great opportunity for gathering crops, folks. He's not talking about literal crops. He's talking metaphorically here about the harvest of human souls for salvation. In other words, Jesus says there are many people who need to hear the gospel. The only problem is we need more help. We need other laborers and we need to seek God. The Lord of the harvest was able to grant more laborers to reach the people. So he says, therefore, in verse 38, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus says, seek the face of God for laborers. We need to ask the one who is able to provide the workers who will bring in the harvest. How amazing that Jesus, the perfect God-man, though he could have done all things on his own through whom all things were created, is exhorting the disciples to be a God-dependent group of people. Otherwise, Jesus knows if they're not God-dependent, if they don't seek the Lord of the harvest, they're going to grow at some point weary of the work, are they not? They will. Let me ask you, how many of us, as we look upon people in our community with compassion that God may use us, we pray that God may use us for that purpose, to reach them for Christ? How many of us pray evangelistically? How many of us pray for divine appointments? Lord, this week, send me a divine appointment. Somebody that you want me to reach out to. You know what the problem is? The problem is not that God doesn't send us divine appointments. The problem is we are not spiritually perceptive enough to know that he every single day grants us a divine appointment. Think about that today. Wherever you go after this service... You will have somebody come across you, maybe at the restaurant, maybe in your neighborhood, maybe as you're cutting your lawn today, and your neighbor's going to be out there, or you're at a restaurant getting some good munchies. Somebody's going to be there that you can extend a good word of the gospel to. Or you can begin a relationship with. God, every single day, gives us or grants us divine appointments that we, may, that we may share the gospel, beloved, that we may be a light to those around us of the beauty of Christ in some capacity. How many of us plead in the way that Jesus taught his disciples, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How many of us are actually praying that and praying that God would use us as instruments to bring about his kingdom? See, Jesus, the God-man, instructs his own disciples to plead with God that God may send more laborers who will bring in God's harvest before sending them out. Isn't that interesting? Jesus could have just jumped right into sending them out. He has been modeling this for them, but that's not what he does first. He says, first, pray. Beseech the only one who's able to help us fulfill our mission. Jesus himself was more than adequate to fulfill the mission, but his disciples needed to know that in themselves they were inadequate to do this mission. They needed the strength of God. So he says, beseech God that he would send more laborers because the task is too great. Now notice... Lest we think that we don't have a job to do, but simply pray for God's help. I know believers like that. 
well, I'm just going to pray. You know, my job is just to pray. I'm not the one that goes out. You know, I'm not the one that does this, does that. I just pray. Well, God wants us to do, in many of our cases, beloved, more than just praying. Notice that Jesus' resolve for the mission is not just that the disciples pray, but then they're moved to action. He sends them out. This resolve is fueled by prayer and propels us to action. It propels us to action. Notice chapter 10 and verse 1. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And then in verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. So Jesus, who has all authority, calls his disciples to himself, instructs them, passes on a measure of his authority to them to cast out unclean spirits and heal sicknesses and sends them out, essentially saying, guys, get to work. Here's a snapshot of what I'm going to later on tell you upon my ascension that you're going to spend the rest of your lives doing. Here's a mini mission within the greater mission, if you will. And they go out. Jesus put his passion and his burden for the glory of his father and the burden of the lost to action, did he not? He was a doer of the word, if you will. You remember James, the Lord's half-brother, and we saw a few weeks ago that he wrote in James 1, but be doers of the word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. Do you remember that? James, the half-brother of Jesus, must have gotten that from Jesus. Because Jesus was an effectual doer. Jesus himself was preaching and teaching and healing. And now he says to his disciples, I want you to do the same thing as well. You've watched my example. You've watched my ministry. You need to go out and do the same. So he instructs them. He empowers them. And he sends them out. That they might also do the Father's will and be about the mission. Driven to action. There was nothing more important in Jesus' resolve for his mission, than to glorify his Father. Nothing more important, no greater priority, than to glorify his Father. In John 6.38, he said this, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And even in his deepest moment of anguish, as he has resolutely set his face to go to the cross and to suffer, he would not be deterred from his mission, beloved. He says in John chapter 12, verse 27, Now my soul has become troubled. Why, Jesus? Because he knows that the suffering is coming. The cross is coming. He's going to go to the cross. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Even in the moment of deepest anguish and suffering and anticipation of what was, what was going to happen at the cross and before the cross and all the ridicule, Jesus is resolute on the glory of his Father. Determined to go to the cross. The glory of God was Jesus' greatest motivation for being resolved in fulfilling His mission, beloved. And I would say to us, having the heart of a missionary begins with having the glory of God as our greatest priority, does it not? That we would see the Father's will done. 
That we would see God glorified as people come to know Him and bow the knee to Him. Having a missionary heart is motivated by a deep burden then, also for fellow man, that they be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. We should want to see broken people come to know Christ, beloved. We should want to see revelation fulfilled where people of every tongue and tribe and nation are praising the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How will they be there if nobody preaches the gospel to them? You say, well, God is sovereign. God is going to elect His own. He's elected His own. He's going to accomplish what He's going to accomplish regardless. You know what? God uses means, does He not? He uses you as an instrument to proclaim the gospel. And yes, at the end of the day, everybody who was meant to be there is going to be there. But you and I must be faithful to dropping the bomb of the gospel and living the light of the gospel here on this earth. Faithfulness is what God wants from us. The overwhelming responsibility of making disciples drives us, beloved, and it should to our knees. And to deep and passionate prayer and intercession. As Jesus commanded his disciples to seek, beseech the Lord of the harvest, that he would send more workers to bring in the harvest, we ought to be beseeching passionately that God would raise up more laborers and that he would use us to go out and proclaim the gospel. We must be a God dependent people and a God dependent church, beloved. And we recognize that Jesus, who has all authority, has commissioned us, He's empowered us for the task of making disciples here on this earth. And so having been empowered, we get to work, beloved. We're driven and we're propelled to action. Listen, as we look at the example of the greatest missionary ever, My desire is to fan the flame in your hearts to a greater passion for the mission that we have to accomplish here on this earth. Let's take our eyes off of the peripheral matters of life. Let's be singularly focused on the mission of Christ to see Him exalted as we make disciples. Amen? Let's see that happen, beloved. And seek Him for the empowering, as we saw last week in Colossians chapter 1, that He is more than able because of His infinite reservoir of power to grant us the strength and the power that we need to reach people for Christ. Amen? He can. I'm not after this morning some emotional, momentary, passing thing in your heart. I'm not after some passing excitement. I hope and I pray that the Word of God does its work in your heart so that you are propelled to action, beloved. As individuals and as a corporate body that we would do that. It's not going to happen by just simply talking about it, is it? Or even just preaching about being a mission-focused church. We must flesh it out personally and as a church in the way that we live. We must be deliberate about how this is going to be carried out, right? And purposeful. Many times we have great desires and we have great passions in our heart to pursue certain things, but we are not purposeful or deliberate enough. And so we want to do that as a church. And so I want to call up my brother, dear brother and missions pastor, Tim Carnes, to talk to us about how we as a church can do this. Okay? Is Tim here? Yes. Good. Good, brother. You're a little nervous there. I was getting ready to launch off, say what you were going to say. 
Praise the Lord. Thank you, brother. Um, I'm not up here to give another sermon. That one was enough, wasn't it? It's a great challenge. We've been greatly challenged by Christ's own example, um, his care and compassion to reach out to the lost. Um, we even see just in him this laser-like focus on his mission, right? Kempis showed us that again. We see that in the Gospels, and, and we even see in his last recorded words, the last words that he spoke before he ascended to heaven was on mission. Now, let me remind you of those words. Uh, we heard from them earlier today, uh, earlier this morning when uh, Kempis read from them. I want to just focus on Acts 1.8, where Jesus says to his disciples just before he ascended into heaven, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Again, think about it. These are the very last words that he spoke before he ascended. And in those words, he gives one instruction. You shall be my witnesses. That's his instruction. That's what he focused on. You, disciples, shall give testimony of who I am and what I have done. You shall proclaim my name, not only here, but outside of this area and beyond. You shall be the ones who will tell the world of what I have done and the message of the cross. That was his last instruction. And then he went up. The angels came down and explained what had happened. Let me ask you this question and this particular instruction that he gives. Was that instruction only for the disciples? Was the message only to be delivered to those who lived in the first century? Of course not. Of course not. Was that message something that that was only to be given for the people who lived in the time of the apostles and only by the apostles? And it was not, right? The baton, baton was passed. The disciples passed the baton on to the church. And the next generation that followed, the church passed it on to them. And so on and so on. And now we're holding that baton. It's been given to us anyway. We have the baton. We are now to be his witnesses. This is kind of sort of turning into another sermon, isn't it? But I just have one question for all of us here at Calvary. How are you doing, brothers and sisters? How are you doing? You know, each uh, year we have a missions conference here. Uh, it's one of my favorite things here. And uh, several of the missionaries come back. We have a, a spend a weekend. They set up in the great room upstairs. They have these booths, right? Have you, have you all been there? You've seen that? They have these booths set up all around the great room and sometimes in the hallway there. And, and in these booths, they have cards. They have flyers. They have pictures, sometimes videos, different things that are uh, there to provide an update of, of what they've been doing, of their, uh, the witness that they have been for Christ in their particular region. And Jesse Rodriguez and I, we were sitting uh, talking about this uh, that this week, and he asked an interesting question. He said, what if at this year's missions conference, that it wasn't the missionaries that had booths set up? What if it was each of us? What if each of you had a booth? Hmm, that's an interesting question. It's a convicting question. What would... You put in your booth. What would be there as a display and evidence of the witness and testimony you have been for the Lord Jesus Christ in your sphere this year? It's a challenging question. That goes to now, what do we do with this? Was this just a a message a day to just kind of make us feel guilty back again on evangelism and 
Not at all. Hopefully it's been an encouragement to think, to look to the example of Christ, to be motivated by the glory of God, to be praying to this end. And we also want to be able to put some hands and feet to this. And so next year, our vision as a church, we're calling it the the year of mission. 2016, the elders are called the year of mission here at Calvary Bible Church. And the focus, the intent, the purpose is to have us come alongside one another to fill our booth. To fill our booth. Booths, I guess, would be the right way to say that. To, to help each other, to help one another fulfill our mission and our purpose as a church, which is only one mission, only one purpose, and that is to make disciples, right? That's where we started this morning, Matthew 28. And there are three specific ways that we want to focus on this year as a church in seeking to be a, this year of mission. And the three ways really echo back to the strategy that Jesus Christ gave to his apostles In Acts 1, verse 8, as you see behind me, look again where he says, you shall be my witnesses. And then notice the strategy. He says, you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And notice from what Jesus says here that that there's this radiating pattern beginning in Jerusalem, this radiating pattern geographically, that they were to begin to spread the gospel and proclaim the message of Christ where they lived. And in those first few chapters of Acts, there was an amazing effect, wasn't it? Thousands of people coming to Christ. And then they were not only to remain there in Jerusalem, but to spread out to all the region of Judea, the province in which Jerusalem is located, and then to go beyond that to their neighbors, to those who lived in Samaria. That was the neighboring uh, province above Judea, an area where there were people who they did not get along with very well. But Jesus says, I don't want you to confine yourself here. You need to go to your neighbor. And then he didn't stop there. He said, you are then to continue. You are to continue to the ends of the earth. And that is exactly what we see take place in the book of Acts, don't we? Beginning in Jerusalem and the area of Judea. And then we see in Acts 8, Philip goes to Samaria, proclaims the gospel there. And then we see in Acts 10, the Gentiles, the, the centurion who was brought to Christ. And after that, all the missionary journeys of the apostle Paul as it went to the ends of the earth. Again, this radiating pattern of the gospel going forth. Paul going all over the Roman Empire. And so for the year of mission, we want to touch on those three areas. In a similar fashion, we want to focus on our Jerusalem. We want to focus on our Samaria and then also focus on the ends of the earth. And to do that, we have three particular ways we want to tangibly seek to carry that out. The first is in our Jerusalem, our local neighborhoods, where we live, Burbank, Lindale, North Hollywood, uh, parts of the valley. Several Sundays next year, after service, we're going to hold, again, what we call Jerusalem Projects. Maybe some of you have participated in those in the past, where we have door hangers and information and tracks, and we go out into the neighborhoods and hang those door hangers that have information about the church or invite to special events like VBS or the Christmas concert. Did that last year several times, and um, I had many opportunities, actually, believe it or not, to talk to people while I was out there, but at least... We were able to get uh, information and material and the gospel out, even in simple ways like door hangers. So we're going to have specific Sundays uh, next year planned out where we're going to have these Jerusalem projects and invite you to participate. We'll have the blocks in the neighborhood lined out, and, and it's very well organized, and it's a, it's a really neat opportunity and a simple one. 
We're going to continue to encourage you as part of our Jerusalem outreach to participate and consider going or visiting our evangelism team and the outreach that they hold in Burbank and North Hollywood areas every Saturday night. We continue to to encourage that. That's been going on for several years now. It's just been a wonderful blessing. In addition to Jerusalem and our focus there, our secondary focus will be on Samaria. Those areas outside of Burbank, Glendale, North Hollywood, and the Valley. Those areas just beyond. There are several ministries that we are connected to and support as a church that are located in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, and even beyond. Ministries that we are a part of. House of Blessing in Los Angeles and Hope Again as well in Hollywood. These are gospel-centered ministries that, that focus on trying to get people back on their feet. People who have either been in prison, who have struggled with drugs, or been uh, through some kind of terrible abuse or perhaps even uh, just various issues. They're just on the street. These are ministries that we are a part of, that we support as a church. Avenues Pregnancy Clinics, a ministry that is gospel-focused and coming alongside those who are considering abortion. There's also the Deaf and Deaf-Blind Ministry in Highland Park that cares for those who cannot see and cannot hear. Again, gospel-focused, gospel-based ministry. And then Children's Hunger Fund is another one that we are connected to. So what we want to do, and we're calling this Serving Samaria is we want to focus attention on, throughout the year, getting our fellowship groups to adopt one of these ministries. They're, they're just a short car ride away. And so we want to look for opportunities and how we can serve either physically or spiritual needs to these various ministries that we're already connected to and a part of. And so we want to do that as part of our Serving Samaria. We'll have three or four times during the year that we're going to encourage fellowship groups to, to participate and care for the needs in these various ministries. So in addition to serving our Jerusalem and serving Samaria with the gospel, our third focus in the year of mission is the ends of the earth, going outside of our borders. And the goal next year is to send four teams on short-term missions trips. That's more teams than we have sent here from Calvary. I've already been in correspondence with the missionaries that we support overseas, and we have four trips already lined up for Kenya, Honduras, the Philippines, and Malawi, Africa. These are great opportunities that we can come alongside of missionaries we already support. And what's even neater is that we're involved with churches there and participate in outreach, participate in helping to train pastors or leaders there, and participate in coming alongside and encouraging our missionaries. These aren't vacations. They're opportunities for the gospel. It's amazing even one little thing that you might do on one of these trips and the impact that it can have. I remember when we were in Malawi last year, my wife came and the ladies ministered to the wives of the pastors there. I think I've mentioned that before. And one of the things, a real simple thing, my wife had given them a a sheet to the pastor's wives of specific ways they can be praying for their husbands. And just that one little thing, it was amazing the effect that had. There were many uh, pastors who were coming up to me, thanking me so much for what their wives were now doing, praying for them. I don't know how many guys came up to me and just, they were so appreciative. That one little simple thing. And they were going to carry that back to their churches. Don't underestimate the impact that we can make. So these short-term missions trips are definitely life-changing trips. Right, Megan? You're taking off to South Africa here soon, right? About three-quarters of the way there support-wise, right? And some other guy, too. He's now wanting to go overseas a lot more. You know, really impacted him going on one of these mission trips. But, but that's not the only thing. What it does is it reminds us of a world outside these walls that needs Christ. 
In fact, all of these things, I mean, these areas of focus, uh, the Jerusalem Project, Serving Samaria, Short-Term Missions, those aren't the only ways to carry out Christ's mission. But we believe those are three tangible and helpful ways and specific ones, simple ways that we can be reminding one another of the mission that we are on and also, too, be great ways to encourage and keep in our minds that even in our families and in our specific neighborhoods, at our jobs, what our focus needs to be. And so we're going to give more information as the, uh, coming in the coming months on more specifics on various things. But in regards, there's one thing happening next Sunday, right after second service. I want to encourage you all to consider. And that is um, we're going to have an informational meeting on these four short-term missions trips that will be happening next year. I do want to challenge you to consider coming. Not to the meeting, but coming overseas. But you need to come to the meeting as part of that. But, but even if you say, you know what, I just can't. Circumstances, health, whatever. But I do want to come alongside and support these. Come to the informational meeting so you can hear what we have planned for next year in these short-term missions trips. Again, that's November 8th, right after second service. Take advantage next year, beloved, of these different ways to get us on mission, to get us on point, to focus us to be his witnesses in Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And to do that, I want to give you three things to participate, to consider things you can do in preparation for this coming year of mission. There are three simple things. One is, commit to pray each week for these three areas of focus next year, for the Jerusalem Project, for serving Samaria, for the short-term missions. Commit to pray each week that God would, would use them to advance the gospel. Secondly, Commit to participate in at least one of these three areas. Commit to participate in prayerfully asking God, Lord, I'll do the Jerusalem project each time it comes up. Or I want to go overseas. Or I want to be a participant in supporting those going overseas. Commit to one or or all three of these areas next year. And thirdly, commit to pray again each week that God would use 2016 year of mission as something that will galvanize this church so that we would be known not only as a church who teaches the Bible clearly and accurately, but as a church who is all about Christ's mission as his ambassadors. Amen? So commit to pray that God would use the year of mission next year. Pray for each of those specific things. Commit to, to consider being a part of one of those, one of those particular things next year. And thirdly, commit to pray God would use it to, to move in us as a church to be about the Great Commission. So what I want to do is give you a minute to pray along those lines, and then I will close us in a minute after. So go ahead and talk to the Lord. Oh, Father, we have been greatly challenged this morning um, in a good way. Every time we look at your son and see his example as the great missionary, the one who burdened for the lost, burdened so much that he gave of himself, gave his life in order to make a way of salvation. Lord, I thank you for that. Thank you that you have given us this mission. And even, Lord, I love how Brother Kempis described it earlier, one that we joyously and willingly want to follow. And still in us, Lord, heart of compassion, burden for the lost, those in our families, those who we know, and even those we do not know. Burden us, Lord, to be compassionate. Motivate us to pray, 
diligently for workers and then to be those workers. Move in our church next year, Lord. Use these simple ways, the Jerusalem Project, the Serving Samaria, Lord, the short-term missions team. Use these ways to, to focus us, to, to, Lord, transform our culture here to a Great Commission culture. Lord, use our church, please, to be salt and light. We pray these things for the sake of and in the name of our dear Savior. Amen.